Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. Did you know that less and less people make New Year's resolutions? And I'm not ripping on anybody who does. Maybe you know some of the reasons why that already by this time, mid-January, a lot of people have kind of punted. Certainly by the end of the month, that percentage gets higher. And of the people who make New Year's resolutions, those who keep it till the end of the year are among a sliver on the pie chart. And you know, there's some science behind all of this. Like of all the leading resolutions, what is the most common one year after year? It's that a person is going to lose weight, exercise, even retain in shape or obtain in shape status. But there's some science as to why that doesn't happen. Here's some, here's some huge, are you ready for this? Here's some huge science that I came across this week as to why that doesn't happen. Because a lot of people like potato chips and sitting on the couch. Mind blown, I know. Some mad science I just put down for you. No, there's actually, there actually is a lot of science behind this. More than just that, some people would rather binge watch something on Netflix with some tasty treat late at night when they're not supposed to snack, but they do anyways, that's just me, no. There actually is a lot of study behind this. It's, it's not just what people do and at the wrong time, but it's to get to the why. What is it that motivates or maybe even demotivates somebody from doing something that they maybe even want to do or know that they should do? There's this thing called self-determination theory. It sounds about as exciting as watching somebody run on a treadmill, I know. But think about it this way. Think of a two-year-old. What motivates a two-year-old to play with their favorite toys? Does mom or dad have to really twist their arm and throw a carrot in front of their face so that a two-year-old will play with their favorite toys? No. Mom and dad don't have to say anything. Nobody has to say anything because it's something that they inwardly want to do. They autonomously, on their own, and this, and this is what this psychology says, they, on their own, are motivated to do that. And when people are motivated inwardly to do something that is almost always going to go better, it's always going to be a more positive process and outcome than the opposite, which is, think of scenario number two related to the previous. Do, do you have to tell a two-year-old to clean up after their toys? If your answer to that is no, we need to talk afterwards. Um, because you always have to do that. You, and from the outside, it's no longer an internal motivation where they just, oh, I'm going to gladly clean up everything and put it in the right place. No, you, you have to, on the outside, control things. You, you might have to throw a carrot in front of their face, so to speak, maybe even literally, in order to try and get them to do something that they otherwise are not. It's a, it's a controlled thing, per se, an obligation, an enticement to get them to do something from the outside in that they don't want to do from the inside out. This is this is basically what that is. We, we see this with, with working out, this most common New Year's resolution. Somebody looks at what everyone else is doing. They, they compare themselves with what they think good looks would be for themselves. They know what the doctor said about their cholesterol. They look at some of the clothes that they're wearing that might not be getting looser. They know that bathing suit season is approaching, maybe. They think about that. They might think of all the things inwardly that might motivate them, and they might think of a ton of other pressures from the outside in and what the world is selling and the ads that are coming across and this gym membership and that new diet. And of all of these things, they might be pressures upon them. And what people said, especially a couple articles I was reading this week, people make their money by getting people motivated. Not, not by putting them in the best gym. 
not by giving them a whole new workout wardrobe, but by getting them to actually believe that whether they're making it a New Year's resolution or not, they can create a condition where this is like a two-year-old playing with toys. This is something that's actually fun, and it becomes something that they inwardly want to do rather than something that they are, from the outside in, forced to do. You might think for a second that you didn't come here today to listen to motivation and to New Year's resolutions, and I know that. But I do know that you did come here today because you care a whole lot about your life as a believer and how God is working in your life to prepare you for the eternity which he already has your name on through the work of Christ. And since you care a whole lot about that, that means you also care a whole lot about how God wants you to be motivated to live this life out. And that also means that you don't want to be deceived by all the philosophies and panderings of mankind around us which try to lead us from the outside in to want things. And we aren't always clear from the inside out as to how we should be motivated to live the way we want. And, and we know that absolutely every single one of us knows that the reality in which we are living in right now is not it. There should be something more. Nothing is ever really enough. And what God does today is like a spotlight, as we've been talking about throughout this series, like a spotlight shining on the only way, only Jesus, unlike anything else, can be for us what we could never be on our own. Not by making ourselves better, but by becoming more motivated inwardly or from outward forces, but by identifying that Jesus is who God said he would be, and he proved to be who he said he would be, and therefore only Jesus, only Jesus, can be what we never, ever could become on our own. We'll see that in the lesson that I just read for you from Colossians chapter 2. He points directly to this life that God has called them to live. And this is a life that he calls us to lead too. The first question you might say is, that's a tall order you just said, Pastor Kervis, that, that this is a greater reality to which God is leading us? That this is going to be something better and even something that we actually want. There's already identifying factors in our own heads and hearts that lead us to want this thing that God is promising. Absolutely. Think about it. Already in the opening, he says, live, live your life. Not, not tilting this way and that, not being washed about and buffeted like some boat in a tempestuous sea, but you're going to be rooted. You have, you have moorings. You are, you are founded in something that's not going to fail you. You're not going to be so weakly wandering in the ways of this world, this way and that way, and as the world changes what they think about this and that, almost as often as people change their underwear, you're not going to fall into that. Instead, you're going to be strengthened. You're not going to be phased by what this person is saying or what that culture is telling you or what this trend might be saying to you. You're going to be strengthened. You're not going to be caught up in these conflicts which, which beat you down. You're not going to begrudge everything and become regretful to just about everyone around you. To be this angry cuss that nobody wants to be around and you can't even stand to see in the mirror. No, instead you're going to be overflowing with this type of thankfulness that, that helps you recognize that because you are rooted, because you are strengthened, all of this comes about because God has revealed this greater reality in you and for you. And there's a reason why he has to lay it out that way. And there's a reason why I would even argue that inside each and every one of us, there is this inkling that tells us that the reality that we see in this world is not really doing it for us, that, there, that we are meant for something more, something's not quite enough. 
And the reason Paul says that it's important that we be rooted and, and strengthened and, and overflowing with thankfulness is because there are so many deceptive philosophies and human traditions and panderings that, that lead our hearts and minds astray. For the Colossians, there was this special concoction. It was a one-two punch of sorts that deceived them. And maybe you can identify whether or not this is something that still exists today. The one-two punch was, on the, on the one hand, there were these people that led them to think that their lives and what they know, their reality, so to speak, is not, is not enough. By attaining a higher knowledge and by getting more out of their surroundings, by leaving this physical world behind, they can reach this greater understanding. Where they're at now is not enough. Then, then there was a segment among them of Jewish religion that was telling them that they needed to follow all of these rules. They needed to do this and not that. They needed to, to be this religious and, and not that. And if they didn't do these things, well, then they would never be enough. Surprise it to say, this concoction, this special soup that was stirring among these Christians in Colossae could be summarized in this way. There's just something more that you have to do. Where you're at now, not just to yourself, but where you're at now, before God and that reality that you want, that reality that's out there, you're just not enough. Is that anything new? Let me think about it with the ads that obviously lead to sales, with the messages that we see in our culture that certainly gain an audience, with the businesses that are certainly being fueled with finances. How much of that is telling you that you aren't enough? From the worldly perspective, if only you could be just a little bit more successful, a little bit prettier, in a little bit better shape. You could match up better with some of the more successful people that you know. You had, your finances were a little bit better. Your retirement was looking a little bit better. Your job and your status there was a little bit better. Among your friends, it was just a little bit better. And, and really inside all of us, there is this tendency, just naturally, I'm not saying it's drastic, but there is this tendency in all of us to, to kind of reach for that next plateau. And then inevitably what happens when you get there, when you get that latest, greatest, most updatest thing that was going to change your life, when, when you reach that, that goal, when you get that, that name, that label attached to your name, that new role, what happens when you reach that plat plateau? It doesn't take long before your eyes kind of stop doing this and kind of start doing this and then you see the, the, the next one. And this isn't just something that happens in life or in work or among family. Certainly does happen among family, though, doesn't it? I mean, whether you're comparing yourself with other parents and how they parent, or you're looking at your children and how they compare to children and then how you compare to their parents, or it certainly happens in marriage and how you're doing with your spouse compared to how others are. And all of that, it doesn't just happen in life. That is but a microcosm of what is going on in our heads with where we stand before the God of heaven. This is nothing that died with the Colossian Christians. This was going on long before them and will always continue after them and after us. Never enough. If only you were just a little bit more religious. If only there was just a little bit more that you could do. The spirituality that you're really after, if only you would follow some of the, the wanderings in the world in the way that our, our culture talks about it today, then you would be able to find it. There's just a little bit more that you have to do. Finally, where you're, where you're at right now does not ultimately measure up. It's, it's kind of like there's this looming cloud over you, like Charlie Brown's friend. It's like, like you're Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh and woe is me. And there's, there's always something that you could be doing and there's, you're just not enough. It's kind of like this. 
Imagine being a child born into a family. And you can't control the family you're born into. And especially for this child, let's say it's you, you're born into this family and your last name and the reputation that has accompanied that last name long before you were even born just turned out to be a very negative, bad reputation. And so as you're growing up in the circle of friends and even a circle of fellow believers in the town in which you live, everybody gets to know you and maybe even people who don't know you, they hear your last name and they might give you one of these messages non-verbally. So what do you do with something like that? It's like a cloud looming over you, uh, something that you just can't shake. Do you change your name? They still know who you are. You move away and you erase your, your past, you shake the dust off your shoes and you create a new life for yourselves? Fine, but it's not like you just enter your brain, pull out that file from the filing cabinet of your memory and then burn it and then it's away. You still know where you came from. You still know what your family is. You hear it when you talk to, to people who are talking about where they came from and they ask you, well, how long have you been here? And then they say, well, where'd you come from? And then all those memories come back again and it's just something you can't shake. And all of it was completely out of your control and you were born in it. It is this indebtedness of death and you just can't shake it. And for the Christians in Colossae, they're hearing this one-two punch of it's leading them to this idea that they're not enough over here, they're not enough over there, and particularly, especially with this Old Testament covenant of circumcision. Now, permit me a second to explain it in this way as we circle back to that idea of indebtedness. In Genesis 17, God makes this incredible promise to his people where he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Not might be, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And he made a covenant with Abraham and with generation after generation through Abraham. And just as if we were to make a covenant today, we would use some physical element. If you're part of an HOA, you had to make a covenant, but you used something pretty easy. It was a pen and some paper. You had to sign those covenants, maybe. Maybe begrudgingly. Or maybe you were able to avoid that, and that's... That's another issue, but I, I digress. It, it's, you have to use something physical. Well, for God, it was something physical. From males, something would be removed so that they would be brought into a greater reality, that is, God's family. So too, Paul is telling them, all of that, that covenant was a sign for how God was going to make this an eternal reality for his people and for all. Just as we heard in our Old Testament lesson, that he would be a light, not just to Israel, not just to the house of Jacob, but to the Gentiles. So circumcision, something taken away so they would be brought into a greater reality, was but a sign of what God would accomplish in his redemptive covenant in Christ. And where did that happen? In baptism. Just as in circumcision, it wasn't that people made themselves part of the family. It was that God was carrying out his promise for them. It was an arrow down thing. So too, the connection is clear. That in the waters of your baptism, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit took that name and all of that indebtedness, that cloud that was looming over you, and he washed it away as only the Lamb of God could. And how did he do that? He buried you with Christ in your baptism. What did you do to get buried with Christ? Nothing. He raised you with Christ in your baptism, taking that which was this death indebtedness hanging over you, and he made you alive. What did you do in that regard? Nothing. So you have to see that all of the self-determination and all of the motivation from the outside or from the inside or whatever, all of that ultimately in this life leads us to point to the wrong person, and that is 
To whom? To ourselves. And of all the things that we really stink at being, being our own Savior is at the top of the list. And that is why John takes you and me in our eyes and our ears, and he tells us to not look at ourselves. He doesn't say look inwardly and find this motivation to determine how you or yourselves are going to create a better reality. And you know you want it, right? We all do. He points us completely away from ourselves, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And since you're in the world and you were brought into it with this name on your back and this cloud and death, he came to take away your sin too. Jesus alone came to be what you and I could never become on our own. That is how God shines this clarifying light on the Savior, which means he is not shining the light on on us, as if we could fix it, as if even the compilation of our best days and our greatest resolve from our greatest year could count for our whole life, as if that could even be enough. It can't. The Lamb of God. And so Paul paints this beautiful picture that you're brought to the font of baptism. And God sees that name that you carry. And it's not just that you're born into a bad family and everyone in town knows it and looks at you. They maybe even make jokes about your last name. It's that God sees all that that name means and he agrees with all of them and that keeps you away from him. And what did he decide to do? He took all of the obligation that you have, the responsibility that comes with that name, and yes, the responsibility that you and I would feel in that scenario to make it up, to, to re reconcile our family name and to win it back so people wouldn't look at us with scowls but would look at us, our family name, with praise. To all that responsibility, and what does God do to all of that? He takes it, and he puts it on a person, and he nailed that person to the cross. Get this. The, the entire language is so rich, it's hard to even pick out in the English. He takes not just the written code and our indebtedness, it's even also our responsibility to pay it back. And he nails it to the cross, and he cancels that debt. Not just so, so that everything zeroes out, so to speak, but even the intuition inside our gut, this self-determination to make it better, would cease because we're no longer looking here or listening to all of that out there. Instead, we're looking in the one place where we can find forgiveness and peace. This reality that's greater than this world, it is peace with God. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God did that for you. When through the water and the word in baptism, he didn't ask you to prove yourself. He wasn't waiting for you to be enough. He wasn't hoping that somehow you would determine by your works that you could be enough. Circumcision wasn't that way in the Old Testament. Baptism has never been that way in the New Testament. Instead, you were brought to the waters of baptism, and God took that name, and he gave you a new one. God took your sin in that cloud, and all you see is sunshiny days, literally. God took death, and he gave you life. You want to know what that means for your life? 
this new reality that God promises you? And it doesn't matter what anyone says about you because what your God says about you is that he loves you. That he would see fit to put his name on you. It gives you this resolve to not care about what anyone thinks. And maybe the person you have to convince the most is yourself. When you tell yourself that you are not enough and God tells you that he has made you alive in Christ regardless of what you say about yourself. It does more for you, too. When you stare death in the face, whether it's a loved one or whether it's your own, and you can sing songs like the ones we sang last week, God's own child, they gladly say it. I'm baptized into Christ. Death, you have nothing on me. Sadness, even in the face of sadness, we can smile with tears. You can look at loved ones who are grieving the loss of somebody that they love, and you can say, you're going to see them again. Made alive in Christ. It gives you the answer to yourself. It gives you the answer to death. It maybe even gives you a better answer to the world. That the reality that this world is promising you, if only, if, if, if only, if, if only you would, then, then, and you maybe just identify that as a sandy hill that's going to be brought crashing down because that's what it is. Instead, God tells you that the life you have now that is rooted and strengthened and overflowing with thankfulness matters because it is all God's way of preparing you to realize what he has made you to already be in Christ through the waters of your baptism because in Christ and only in him could we be what we never could become on our own because only Jesus could be what we never could become on our own. May God grant us such a reality now until we see it in full in heaven. Amen.